0: my friends, we are at our most persuasive and at our most electorally successful when, as Ronald Reagan did in this country, as Margaret Thatcher did in mine, when we imbue our message with a little breath of warmth, a little hint of optimism, a promise that the best lies ahead.
1: Welcome to the Acton Vault podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. This week, we go back in time to October 9th, 2014, and the Acton Institute's 24th annual dinner for this speech from Daniel Hannon. Hannon is a British writer, journalist, and politician. He served as a member of the European Parliament, representing Southeast England from 1999 through 2020 standing down from the EU Parliament upon the United Kingdom's exit from the EU in 2020, for which Hannan was the lead campaigner. Hannon first rose to international prominence in 2009, when a video of a short speech he delivered to the EU Parliament went viral. In the speech, Hannon strongly criticized then-Prime Minister Gordon Brown and his response to the 2008 global financial crisis, calling him, quote, "...the devalued Prime Minister of a devalued government." In his address to our 2014 annual dinner, Hannon stressed the importance of not taking for granted the sublime inheritance of our liberal democratic systems of government and the importance of defending that heritage with a sense of optimism and confidence in what is good about the way we do things. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acted Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
0: I was talking the other day to a Polish friend of mine, a member of the European Parliament. My kind of age Like me he got into politics In his late 20s Probably too young in both our cases He has two little girls The same age as mine But he could have grown up In another world I was lucky enough to grow up As most of you were With the constitutional freedoms And the assurance Of private property And the rule of law That we all in English-speaking societies take for granted. He, of course, had grown up under the tyranny of the Jaruzelski regime. And as we reminisced and as the red wine flowed, he began to talk about the impact on him and his countrymen of Pope John Paul II's return from the Vatican to his homeland, touring communist Poland as the first Polish pope my friend told me something that I'd never heard before. He said, you know, in all of that visit, the Holy Father never once directly condemned the communist authorities. He said he didn't have to. He was offering something better. And that, I think, should be the elemental creed of conservatives. We should offer Something better, you know. I sometimes think that pessimism is part of our conservative <laughs> temperament. We can very easily—I I, I think you all recognise this—we can very easily find ourselves focusing on the things we don't like. And my friends, there are plenty of things not to like, right? Don't get me wrong about this. We uh, we watch our values being scorned, our patriotism traduced we see our children being laden with a debt unprecedented in peacetime. It's very easy to get angry. Yeah, there are lots of things to be angry about. But if you're only angry, you come across as curmudgeonly. I catch myself doing it sometimes. My friends, we are at our most persuasive and at our most electorally successful when as Ronald Reagan did in this country, as Margaret Thatcher did in mine, when we imbue our message with a little breath of warmth, a little hint of optimism, a promise that the best lies ahead. If nothing else, it makes good tactical sense. Let me pray in aid as a piece of evidence the referendum that we just went through in Scotland. I was talking to the great Ed Fulner about this uh, over dinner. What a great man Ed Fulner is. Thank you for everything that you've done for freedom in this country. Here's the extraordinary thing, right? Everybody thought that the Scottish referendum was going to be a convincing win for the status quo, which began more than 20 points ahead, right? England and Scotland are not ethnographically separate. The the border between them came about through happenstance rather than because of some great linguistic or cultural divide. This is not like Kosovo or South Sudan or somewhere, right? We watch the same TV, we speak the same language, we sing the same songs, we abuse alcohol in the same way, we have the same problems with obesity and teenage pregnancy. We are uh, typical of the rest of the English-speaking world in that sense. And it it seemed a very odd thing that there was going to be this separation. But you know what happened? During the campaign, the unionist side, the people who were arguing against change, made what in retrospect was a calamitous mistake, which was to focus on all the dangers, on all the horrors that would come following a separation. Oh, you don't know what currency we'd get, and all these companies have said that they'll disinvest and the stock exchange will collapse. You can't do it. Now, they were not wrong in everything that they were saying. The Yes campaign did have serious unanswered questions, but there is a bloody-minded streak in all English-speaking peoples and perhaps especially in Scots that says, don't you presume to tell me what I can and can't do. And the more frenetic these warnings became, the more the polls narrowed, whereas on the other side, the pro-independence leader Alex Salmond Batted away all the doubts or swallowed them up in his great supernova of vague but warm cheer now he would say you know it doesn't matter we're sure we're going to have problems but they're going to be our problems we'll sort them out as an independent people he never needed to engage and it was only in the last three or four days of the campaign that the idiots in charge of the unionist side started making the argument that they should have made all along which is hang on This is not such a bad country that we belong to, right? We've created more jobs, this is a true statistic, an incredible statistic, we've created more jobs in the UK over the last four years than in the other 27 members of the EU put together. We are the fastest growing uh, major economy on the planet and we've done pretty good things together over the years, right? We defeated the slave trade. We uh, helped, with with some help from you guys, uh, defeat the Kaiser and Hitler and these different (laughs) attempts uh, to destroy. We have expanded liberty together around the world. It's maybe not something that you want to just walk away from and it was only when we put across that optimism that the polls turned. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. I saw on TV yesterday here, I didn't catch the whole story, but it looked—it was a story about somebody who had been captured, an American national who had been captured on his way to go and fight for the jihadis in Syria and Iraq, right? I think you've had a number of people in that category. We've had proportionately a few more. What drives a young man brought up... Let me talk about my own country, which I know better here. Brought up in one of our cities, to become so alienated from his fellow countrymen that he's prepared to cross half the world in order to take up arms against our values, our allies and our interests. And not only in Iraq and Syria. uh, We've had a number of British Muslims or British passport holders captured on the battlefields in, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan. We had two who went to Gaza as suicide bombers. What is driving these people into such a rejection of the state that has given them their nurture? Well, the answer is, all of the interactions that they have had with officials of our state have taught them to despise it. If they got any history at all in school, it will have been presented to them as a hateful chronicle of racism and exploitation. If they have uh, they've lived through, what, 30, 40 years, during which our intellectual elites have derided and traduced the British brand. It was for that reason, frankly, that some English and Scottish and Welsh people began to grope back towards older patriotism. But where does that leave the child of immigrants? What is there for him to be part of? Should we be surprised if the identity on his passport is no longer held up as worthy, that some of these guys cast around for a more self-assertive alternative identity? What's the answer? Offer something better. Is there a more wretched system of thought on the planet than that banal evil theocracy? spouted by these ISIL murderers? And is there a better system of government on the planet than the constitutional freedom evolved in the language in which you're listening to these words? Offer something better. Do you know, it's not just tactically wise, it's not just politically astute, it has a greater virtue than that. It's true. Things do get better. Provided that you have trade and exchange and that you release the genius of a free people, things will get better at an accelerating rate. But here's the funny thing. Somewhere in our minds, there is a little bit of our makeup that is determined to disregard the evidence. We just don't want to believe that things are going to carry on improving. Here's a fantastic quotation from the great historian and Whig politician, Lord Macaulay, one of my... uh, All-time political heroes. This was in 1830. Think how aptly these words apply today. He said, on what principle is it that when we see nothing but improvement behind us, we expect nothing but deterioration before us? He says, we cannot absolutely prove that they are in error who tell us that society has reached a turning point and that we have seen our best days but so said all who came before and with just as much apparent reason. Now, that was in 1830. How much truer today, right? Every generation goes through this end-of-days scenario. Every generation expects looming calamity. The cause? Well, that changes with fashion. When I was a boy, it was global cooling. Now it's global warming. It could be bird flu or it could be swine flu. It could be asteroid strikes or it could be nuclear holocaust or it could be drugs-resistant superbugs or it could be the debt crisis or it could be immigration. The cause, that changes generation to generation, but the argument never changes. This time it's going to be different. Yeah, it's all been getting better up until now, but this time it's going to be different. So said all who came before and with just as much apparent reason. And the brute facts... Are relentlessly cheerful. Most people, in most places, at most times are living healthier, happier and more fulfilled lives than their parents would have thought possible. Yeah, there are (laughs) there are occasional reverses, of course there are. There are recessions and there are wars. But look at the really basic underlying data. Longevity, literacy, Infant mortality, calorie intake, height. On the really basic metrics, we are getting better. And the reason we're getting better is because trade and free exchange is always several steps ahead of the best attempts of government regulation to mess everything up. Because the, the, the entrepreneurs are always smarter than the bureaucrats. So cheer up, my friends. Let not your hearts be troubled. How many times have we sat in conservative audiences of this kind and we've, perhaps you've even been doing it tonight uh, over your dinner saying things can't go on like this, you know, the debt and the one seventeen trillion dollars and the Obama, things can't go, do you know what, right, if they can't go on like this, guess what, they won't. There is a natural corrective mechanism, and that mechanism is the genius of a free people. It's the, 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 the constitution that your founders designed. That corrective mechanism is you, and I expect you to make full use of it at the next election. My friends, I, I venture to address you as cousins as kinsmen, as citizens of the greatest republic on earth, as joint heirs to the sublime patrimony of freedom under the law that is our shared inheritance as English-speaking peoples. And in doing so, I will imprecate the ghost of Lord Acton, whom we honour in this institute. This is what he had to say, or one of the things he had to say about this country. He said, it was from America that the plain ideas that men ought to mind their own business and that the nation is responsible to heaven for the acts of the state burst forth like a conqueror upon the world and the principle gained ground that a nation can never abandon its fate to an authority it cannot control. What a brilliant summary of what this country is about. Now, why do I praise you as kinsmen being a British conservative politician. Well, here's the thing. I kind of feel we have a slight stake in your success. No speaker of this language can be indifferent to the fortunes of this nation. We've been through too much together. Those Actonian ideas, those sublime visions that actuated your founders, that led to the miracle, the little secular miracle, in the old courthouse in Philadelphia, they didn't suddenly develop in a vacuum. Listen to the debates your founders were having at the time. Detect the tone running through the Federalist Papers and the arguments that went back and forth. The thing that comes across again and again is that the men who made this republic did not regard themselves as revolutionaries, but rather as conservatives. They believed that they were not creating some new abstract system, but rather... They were asserting the freedoms they assumed they had been born with as Englishmen. And when they used the word revolution, they were using it in its 18th century sense to mean a complete turn of the wheel, a setting upright of that which had been turned on its head so that the state should once again be the servant of the citizen rather than the other way around. They traced <laughs> they found an ancient pedigree, a long lineage in support of these ideas. They didn't believe that these had suddenly appeared as if by spontaneous combustion among them. They traced that lineage back through the English Bill of Rights, which large sections of which were replicated I can't quite say cut and pasted because I don't think the technology existed, but were replicated verbatim in your Bill of Rights. They traced it back through the upheavals of the English Civil War, back even before the Great Charter itself, whose anniversary we celebrate next year, to the folk right of Anglo-Saxon common law. This extraordinary, beautiful, anomalous idea that the law doesn't come from the government but resides in the people and the territory. That phrase that we have again and again, we use it all the time in English and we're very unusual in doing so, this phrase that trips off our tongue so easily, the law of the land. Not the king's law. Not a law in some sacred book interpreted by prelates, but a law imminent in the population. In other words, the law does not come down from the government but rather comes up from the population. It grows like a coral, case by case, each judgment serving as the starting point for the next. This is something that in the European Parliament where I work, people still find extraordinary, right? You'd think if you were designing a legal system that you should write down a law in the abstract and then apply it to particular cases. What an amazing thing, and nobody really understands how it got going. What an amazing thing that the law should have been there all along. Not an instrument of state control, but a mechanism open to the individual seeking redress. Common law, again and again, has been the hero of our story. It's what's fashioned the free society that we enjoy today. It's what's created constitutional liberty, this extraordinary presumption of residual freedom. The idea that that which is not expressly prohibited is allowed because the law belongs to the whole country. Do you know, every week I come across the difference in mentality when we regulate things in the European Parliament. We, there'll be a proposal to have some new directive on something, of widgets, and I'll say, you know, hang on, to what problem is, this a solution? Why do we need regulation? And my fr- my colleagues will say, because the existing system is unregulated. As though, as though unregulated and illegal were synonymous concepts. The idea that a lack of regulation might be a natural state of affairs is seen as a bizarre Anglo-Saxon fetish. If I give you uh, If I give you just one contemporary example, the European Union is progressively working its way through uh, a number of herbal remedies and alternative medicines and either banning them outright or, in some cases, subjecting them to a prohibitively expensive testing regime. Now, I'm sure that in this room, opinions will differ on the efficacy of herbal remedies, right? They, they differ even within the Hannan household. My wife thinks that they're marvellous, much better than conventional medicines. I think they are harmless placebos. They are certainly not, however, poisonous, right? There is such a thing, or there ought to be such a thing, as presumption of innocence. It is not in the interest of a herbalist to poison her customers. <laughs> it's a bad business model, now, as I say, you can think that they're a good thing or that you can think that they're a bad thing, but they're not a... You know, actually, the reason I really got into this is, is because, of course, Mrs H thinks they're a good thing. And as, uh, as King Solomon tells us, it is better to have a dish of bitter herbs in a house where there is love than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. And uh, <laughs> Perhaps never since the days of King Solomon has the bit about the the bitter herbs applied quite so literally as in this uh, case of Brussels banning the alternative medicines. But why? Why criminalise a harmless activity pursued by some 20 million Europeans? Well, this is the problem with a, a statist model. This is the problem with assuming regulation. When you have such a system, it is open to every vested interest every corporate lobby group to try and capture it. And so, sure enough, in this case, who was pushing for the bans on alternative medicine? Of course, it was the big pharmaceutical corporations who saw a wonderful opportunity to disadvantage their smaller rivals because they could easily afford the compliance costs. I can't help noticing these are now the same people lining up behind Obamacare. I wonder if there is a, a similar motive there. My friends... I I say I venture to speak to you as uh, an Anglosphere conservative among his fellows because I think that that tradition we had of freedom under the law, of residual liberty, uh, uh, of sanctity of contract, of private property, of free speech, free worship, all of the things that we take for granted is something that not only defines us as a people but the spread of those values by your fathers and ours, including mine, is what raised our nations uh, above the run of mankind. And it is a shared inheritance. 150 years ago, uh, on uh, the graveyard uh, at Gettysburg, Abraham Lincoln, sick with and lightheaded with an oncoming case of smallpox, made what is now the most famous apologia for democracy, quoted endlessly and quoted often as the supreme statement of American exceptionalism. We all know how he finishes, right? That this nation under God shall have a new lease and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Now, here's the really extraordinary thing. Those words were not Lincoln's. His audience would have recognized them as ours typically does not. They came from the prologue of what was probably the first translation of the Bible into the English language by John Wycliffe. And unbelievably, they were written in 1384. In what other language than ours could that thought have been verbalized in the 14th century? Meaning pretty much what we mean by it today. It's so natural to be blasé, I go back to my conversation with my Polish friend. It's so easy to take for granted the things that are familiar. To assume that jury trials and unregulated newspapers and equality between men and women and regular elections and habeas corpus, that these things are somehow the natural condition of an advanced society. That every country will get there in the end when it becomes wealthy enough and educated enough. But history tells a very different story. All those precepts were overwhelmingly developed in our language. And although we call them global values, or sometimes Western values, you know what? We're being polite. If they became universal values, let's be honest, it was as a result of a series of military victories by the English-speaking peoples. Imagine that the Second World War had ended differently. Imagine that the Cold War had ended differently. There'd have been nothing universal about them then. That is our sublime inheritance. Now, I come here and speak as the son of a nation that has indeed, in Lord Acton's phrase, abandoned abandoned its fate to an authority that it cannot control. How the great Acton would growl in disbelief if he could see the way we've subordinated ourselves before the institutions of the European Union. But perhaps, lover of America that he was, an even more strangulated sound would have emerged from the depths of that great beard of his if he could see a similar process unfolding here. There was perhaps no contemporary overseas observer who was such a strong believer in localism, in states' rights, in the decentralization of power. He would stare in fascinated horror if he could observe now this steady transfer of jurisdiction from the 50 states to Washington, from the elected representative to the unelected functionary, from the citizen to the state. We've made all those mistakes before you. And I come here as a friend of America and a friend of American democracy to warn you as a friend does In these circumstances Not to follow us We came right to the brink of the cliff The financial crisis is what happens When the money runs out When years of growing state bureaucracy Increasing your consumption Without increasing your productivity Bloating every every bureaucracy Always passing the debts To future generations When that catches up to you Thankfully we had a government That returned Order and sanity to our public finances. We brought the car screeching to a halt just on the edge of the cliff. And now we glance up and what do we see in our rear-view mirror, if not this great country of yours, hurrying to overtake us? My friends, there's still time to turn aside. It doesn't have to be this way. If I've learned one thing in politics, it's that people are wiser than their leaders. And perhaps in no country is that so true as here. It's up to you. It's up to you to choose legislators and candidates and ultimately a president who take their oath of office seriously, who really mean it when they promise to uphold that sublime constitution which is perhaps the greatest ever produced by human intelligence. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Remember your past. Honor your fathers. Treasure the extraordinary inheritance that has come from your founders. With that inheritance comes a duty, a responsibility to keep intact the freedoms that you inherited and pass them on securely to your children. Never be afraid to speak to and for the soul of this nation, of which, by good fortune and God's grace, you're privileged to be part
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you.